Hello and welcome to The World Ahead from The Economist. I'm Tom Standage. During my career at The Economist, I've reported from all over the world, from Kampala to Tokyo and from Silicon Valley to Shenzhen. In each case, I went looking for clues about what the future might hold. Well, for this series, I'm going a step further. A vortex in the space-time continuum has enabled me to travel to the year 2042, or at least one possible 2042, to report directly from the future on four different topics. Food, health, education and climate technology. Once you've heard my report from the future, we'll return to the present day to talk about the chances of that particular scenario coming to pass. In this episode, we're considering the future of food. So tuck in your napkin and prepare to be transported to the year 2042. Ah, the sound of steak sizzling on the induction grill. You can probably imagine the taste and smell just from hearing it. But this month, two countries, the Netherlands and Belize, joined Costa Rica in banning the production and sale of all animal-based meat. Alternatives based on plants, or grown in bioreactors, are now cheap and abundant enough, they argue, that relying on meat from animals is no longer necessary. Such bans will also help these countries meet their carbon zero targets for 2060 under the Mumbai Climate Agreement. But the crackdown on animal-based meat is facing growing opposition. One objection is that although cultured meat is cheap, consumers pay the price when it comes to taste. Production of cultured meat is dominated by three big companies who want their products to have the widest possible appeal in global markets. The result is that eating real meat is increasingly a form of conspicuous consumption, quite literally, for the better off. For the poor, meanwhile, it's not so much let them eat cake as let them eat synthetic chicken. So I've come to an unusual restaurant inside an art gallery in Berlin. The meal being served tonight and every night this week is part of a controversial artwork called Eat Culture, staged by the food artist and activist Tana Renju. Hello, Tana. So what are some of the things on your menu? Well... All the food we are serving tonight is based on endangered species of animal. So maybe we can start with some blue whale sashimi with chili, lime and ginger dressing. Oh, thank you. Mmm, very nice. Interesting texture. A bit chewy, but a very deep sort of gamey flavour. Mm. And here we have tiger meat served tartar style, so tiger tartar. OK, let's see what it's like. Mmm. Surprisingly light in colour, and it tastes sort of somewhere in between pork and chicken, I'd say. Mm. And finally, we have my mystery course. I call it hybrid meat. Oh, yes, I've heard about this one. <laughs> OK, <laughs> then. Here goes. Mmm. Rather difficult to place. It's sort, of, it's sort of like beef, but it's also kind of like tuna, but with a lot more in- intensity. I'm glad you like it. Well, thank you. All that was delicious. Now, you've said that no animals were harmed to produce this meal. So how exactly have you done it? All the meat and fish in this meal has been cultured from cells using a small bioreactor. I have been working with my team for many years to develop this menu and we are very pleased with the results. 
as I understand it, cultured meat has to be grown from real animal cells. So how did you get hold of the cells for all of these exotic animals? I cannot go into the details of exactly where they come from. But I have some friends who support what I'm trying to do with this project and help me to obtain the necessary samples. They were taken from live animals, but their health was not endangered. So what exactly are you trying to do with this project? What's your message here? Well, I am trying to show that cultured meat does not have to be bland, tasteless stuff. I think cultured meat production should be done locally, like you have local bakers or local brewers. It should not be in the hands of giant corporations. But the big three have made the regulators believe that small local production is unsafe. Okay, but why did you need to use endangered animals to make this point? Was that just the best way to attract attention? Well, maybe a little. But we need to change how we think about meat altogether. The shock that people feel when they hear that I'm serving blue whale or gorilla, it was the right thing to be shocked in the past, but not anymore because we are not harming these animals. Why do people eat so much chicken or pork? It's because those kinds of meats were easiest to produce in the past using animals. But now, we no longer have this limitation. There is a whole new world of things to try. Let me ask you about that last item on your menu, what you call a hybrid meat made from more than one animal. There's a rumour going around that you included cells from your own body as part of the mixture that went into the bioreactor. Is that true? I am not going to reveal what the final meat is until my show is finished. Well, that sounds like a yes to me. <laughs> I am not confirming or denying. Tana Redju, thank you very much for talking to me. Thank you. OK, well, I've now returned to the present day. And with me are John Fasman, author of our Technology Quarterly on the Future of Food, and Liz Specht, Vice President of Science and Technology at the Good Food Institute, which is a non-profit group focused on reimagining protein production. Welcome to you both. Thank you. Thanks. So what's your immediate reaction to my report from the future? Liz, what do you think? Yeah, well, I, I certainly appreciate fun hypothetical scenarios like this. I do think there will always be sort of provocateurs who are pushing the border of what's sort of culturally acceptable or societally acceptable. But really, the goal of this field, the cultivated meat field, is that really we're trying to enable folks to keep eating their current favorite meats, rather than needing to get too exotic or too provocative. So a lot of cool things are possible. But again, I think the, the focus of this industry in the near-ish term will really be on providing consumers uh, an alternative for traditional industrial animal farmed meat that hits the metrics that they really care about, which are taste and price. John, what did you think? Because you've, you've thought a lot about the future of food. I thought it was a really compelling uh, skit and a fun skit. I've thought about the future of food. I also like eating a wide range of meats. I think the the prospect of being able to eat tiger tartare or even beef mixed with my own cell tartare is, is pretty compelling. But I agree with Liz that the victory for cultivated meat won't be when we can sort of choose from any animal in the universe what we want to eat at an event like the one you attended in 2042. It'll be me going to the store and seeing 
cultured meat for sale for dinner for my family at night or me going to a baseball game and having a hot dog that's made from cultivated meat or a mixture of cultivated meat and plant-based proteins just as a matter of course. I think that this technology has the potential to do some real good environmentally, but it has to be adopted as widely as possible. Great. Well, we'll tuck into the details after this. We're focusing on the future of food, and in particular, a future in which animal-based meat is being pushed aside by cultured or cultivated meat. Liz, how do you see the relative consumption of animal-based meat and its alternatives evolving in the future? Yeah, so the landscape of alternative proteins really includes kind of three segments, and these are at different relative levels of maturity right now. And I think we'll see that play out over the coming decades in terms of market share that they each grab. So there's plant-based proteins, which go into the products that consumers are most familiar with right now, you know, Impossible Burgers, Beyond Burgers, etc., Those, I think, are on a really strong path for continuing to capture market share. Right now in the U.S., they comprise about 1.5% of total meat consumption. So we're really just at kind of the beginning of that hockey stick curve, but really, really compelling double-digit growth year over year for the last four or five years there. The second category is microbial fermentation-derived proteins. So the the sort of oldest brand in this category that folks may recognize is corn, with a Q-U-O-R-N. So they're using a a strain of filamentous fungus that produces a really high-quality protein and can go into a number of different uh, sort of minced meat product formats. But there's now a whole suite of new companies coming onto the landscape that are looking at making things that that replicate like whole cut type meat products as well. So things like steaks or chicken breasts. So that category is, is currently relatively small, but on track to grow really quickly. And then the third category, of course, is cultivated meat that is still, as of right now, in 2022, only available in one country in the world. That's Singapore. They're the only region that has approved cultivated meat for commercial sale. So I think that technology is certainly further behind in that there are no large-scale production facilities for that technology yet but a huge swell of startups that are working on that and increasing number of announcements of partnerships between these startups and larger, more established food manufacturers. And I think really what we'll see moving into the future is a lot of products that are really hybrids across all three of these categories. So rather than something that's 100% cultivated meat, it's much, much more likely that we'll start seeing products that are you know, 80 or 90% plant-based protein or microbial protein and then making up that remainder, um, particularly for some of the the kind of highest value components, such as the fat component of of a meat product that tends to pack a lot of that flavorful punch, perhaps being from cultivated meat type production platforms. What are the main advantages of these alternatives to animal meat? And what are the reasons that we're seeing consumers adopt them? The big sort of most urgent challenge that these alternative proteins are addressing is the sustainability and food security challenges. So we're looking, of course, in in your scenario, we'll have probably close to 10 billion people on the planet. We know that right now, industrial animal agriculture is a major contributor to climate change, as well as other environmental damage, uh, pollution eutrophication of our waterways and our oceans, etc. Really, the big incentive here is to move away from such resource intensive methods of producing meat and towards these much more benign processes 
There's also a lot of public health advantages to moving away from these intensive, concentrated animal farming operations. I know we're all kind of hyper attuned right now to things like zoonotic diseases. Um, I'm not sure if folks have been following some of these leaps to human poultry handlers of avian flu, both in the U.S. and in Europe and in China. Those are kind of always the sorts of news stories that keep me up at night. And I think the opportunity to move away from those types of environments, uh, as well as sort of breeding grounds for antimicrobial resistance, is a really compelling advantage here. John, one of the things I was struck by in your report was that, you know, I'm interested in these alternative proteins for their environmental benefits. But there was a survey that you cited that showed that actually that wasn't necessarily the main reason why people are switching to them. What are the reasons why people are actually adopting these meats now? I think there's a wide range of reasons why people are adopting them. I I do think that the plant-based meats like Impossible or Beyond Burger at least are perceived to be healthier than the conventional animal-based meats. I'm not sure that's entirely true. But that certainly is the perception. Animal rights is another big one. I think that if you can consume chicken affordably and regularly without having to participate as a consumer in the incredible cruelty of of battery farming, that's another huge advantage. Liz mentioned food safety. Because cultivated meat is made without contact with animals and their waste, you don't have the risk of salmonella contamination. Like Liz, I think the main advantage of these meats is environmental, is being able to eat beef without contributing, again, as a consumer, to the incredible environmental costs incurred by by cattle ranching. So Liz, where do you think we'll be then in 20 years' time? What fraction of the market would you guess will be animal-based meat of the, of the sort we have today? And what fraction do you think will be these alternatives? Yeah, it's a great question. So a lot of the market analysts are sort of converging on something like 10 to 15% of the market in the next 10 or so years. Importantly, once we start to hit price parity with conventional meat, that will trigger a huge shift in consumer adoption. One important point is that even already, the growth of the alternative protein sector is actually not handicapped by consumer demand right now. It's handicapped by production capacity. So there's a lot of opportunity here for governments or institutional investors or incumbent food industry leaders who have large-scale operational expertise, who have access to kind of deep pockets of capital to help get facilities up and running, or even to transition over existing infrastructure. And there are examples of this being done successfully. Last year, one of the oldest meat companies in Germany announced that their plant-based meat sales had exceeded their conventional meat sales. And part of that is because they're able to kind of switch over when it comes down to making, say, a sausage. It's, it looks relatively similar, whether you're putting animal meat bits in the front end or hydrated plant proteins in the front end. So I think a lot of of need to bolster the supply side of this and make sure that we can grow to a significant market share by 2040. Now, you mentioned there the, uh, the supply side constraints. Another constraint is regulation, isn't it? So how do you see regulation changing? I've actually been pretty uh, pleasantly surprised with a level of receptivity among regulators to start looking at these these new products and processes really early on and engage with the innovators here. Singapore, of course, has been leading the front here. 
I'll also note they're leaning really strongly into alternative proteins from a food security angle. They've got this goal that they call 30 by 30 to be producing 30% of their protein in country by 2030 with, you know, as little land as Singapore has. They have to do this through cultivated meat or through plant-based or microbial production. It's, it's not conceivable for them to meet their protein demand with conventional animal agriculture. So all that is to say their regulators have been really incentivized to be proactive and forward-looking here, and we'll probably see some further announcements from other countries in the next six to 18 months would be my guess. Okay, now, John, if we do see a large-scale shift away from animal-based meat and towards these alternatives, what does that mean for countries and for cultures who are very dependent on the traditional way of producing meat and you know, for whom cattle is very often culturally very important? It's hard for me to imagine that traditional meat will go away anytime in the foreseeable future. And you're quite right to point out that for some cultures, this poses a religious conundrum. I'm thinking I thought a great deal about whether cultivated meat could be kosher. And the answer is it really can't, because for meat to be kosher, the animal must be slaughtered while alive while saying a specific prayer. A meat that is made from cells in, in a bioreactor doesn't meet that standard. So there will always be some demand for actual animal protein but that clearly is a, is a sort of is a minority concern. I think the shift over toward cultivated meat more broadly, as Liz said, is impeded by upstream concerns, and those are the sorts of things that I expect will work out as demand increases. Okay, so so a country like Argentina, for example, that yeah. you know produces a lot of beef, we we can expect to see that industry basically switching towards these uh, these alternative proteins in the way that Liz has already laid out is starting to happen in in other parts of the world. Yeah, you already see big incumbent meat sellers starting to produce their own line of plant-based meats because they know that's what the consumer demands. In the case of somewhere like Argentina or a big cattle ranching state like Wyoming or Nebraska, the demand isn't going to crater overnight. I think it will wane over time, and they will have a chance to move those fields, those ranches, to a different purpose. Now, whether that is returning to nature, whether that is you know, some other form of food production, I don't know. But it's the sort of thing that'll work itself out over time. Okay. And in your special report, you raised this possibility of local production, rather like breweries and bakeries of cultivated meat. Might we see that as a model emerging? Or is it likely to be dominated by the sort of giant companies that we see dominating meat production now? I think not only are we likely to see it, we already are seeing it. A company that I visited in California called Upside Foods has just taken over an enormous production space, not big enough to sort of meet actual consumer demand as it exists now, but big enough to be a sort of proof of concept for investors that they can produce at scale, they can scale up and scale down, and it's meant to be open so that people can see the meat being produced in tanks much like a regular brewery. I think it's still likely that you'll see big incumbents start to emerge. Whether those are the current incumbents or whether they're future incumbents, I don't know. But there will always be a place for small-scale meat producers in the same way that there is a Budweiser and there is a Michelob and there are also craft beers. Great. Now, I wanted to ask you about um, the, what these meats actually taste like. I've had the Impossible Burger. Uh, I had it in Hong Kong. It's not available in Britain yet, but I had it. and I, It's streets ahead of the Beyond Burger. It really is very impressive with the synthetic heme. John, am I right in thinking that you had some synthetic chicken or something when you were reporting your special report? What have you had that was most impressive in this line? Yeah, I had cultivated chicken, and I wish I could say it was earth-shattering and life-changing, but it really just tasted like chicken. 
because it was chicken, right? What I think is interesting is that companies that are making cultivated meat seem to be making basically a bet and t- taking one of two tacks. One is what Upside is doing and trying to make chicken because it is the most widely consumed meat. And I think they figure they'll have the most impact if they do it that way. The other is companies like one I talked to in San Diego called Blue Nalu, which is making bluefin tuna because it is endangered and expensive. And they reckon they will best be able to recoup their investment by selling at the high end of the price scale. My initial sense is that Blue Nalo's bet is probably the better one because the cost of feed for cells is the real linchpin point, right? You can't make something cheaper as an output than an input cost, and that input cost to feed is really expensive. But there's enough room for both of those companies to make those bets and see how things play out. So it's sort of like the Tesla strategy, start at yeah, the top exactly. of the market. Start at the top. Down. Right. Yes. Okay, cool. And Liz, what's the most impressive um, non-animal meat that you've ever had? Yeah, so I've had the the pleasure of enjoying three different cultivated meat products. Actually, one was a hybrid. So it was a bacon prototype with cultivated fat cells. Uh, and then I believe the remainder was plant-based. That was really impressive from a, a flavor perspective. I've had duck, uh, which there it was really the texture that surprised me. You know, plant-based meat products, particularly ones that are trying to mimic that sort of whole structure of like intact muscle meat, tends to be once you bite through them, you know, you kind of sever those fibers and that's it. There's not a sort of like bounciness or chewiness to it. And that was a big difference that I noticed with this cultivated duck product that it did have that sort of bounce back and that mouthfeel. Uh, and then I had a, a relatively early prototype uh, for salmon. And what struck me there was that it was a really deep red color. One of the critiques that folks have about farmed salmon typically is that it's not as deep red as wild-caught salmon. The salmon aquaculture industry tries to improve their color profiles by feeding the salmon these red algae that produce a lot of that pigment, and, and which is how salmon are getting that pigment naturally in the wild. And of course, beyond the kind of exotic animals, there's also the possibility of making up entirely new kinds of meat by combining cells. And you've already talked about hybrid meats where where you combine plant-based with a cultivated approach. So where do you see us in, you know, in the much longer term future, in a, in a century from now? Are we still going to be making pretend chicken, even though we're not eating chicken? Or will we have invented sort of entirely new kinds of meat that actually aren't related to any kind of um, animal in the first place? Yeah. So I think, you know, looking at what's happening in the dairy case is maybe a good example. So we essentially had three or four choices, right? We had whole milk, we had 0% milk and 1% and 2%. Now, if you go to the dairy case, you'll find almond milk, hemp milk, oat milk, soy milk. So there's really been sort of a diversification of product types and people are developing genuine preferences for different use purposes. So I think what we'll see is that folks are able to really sort of branch out and develop different preferences for different types of meal choices or different types of eating situations within these products. Great. What do you think, John? I find it hard to imagine that if we manage to solve the price point problems, if cultivated meat becomes widely consumed, that we will still be eating exclusively or even mostly the same sorts of meat we're making now. I would think that the possibilities for hybrid meats, for editing in, as Liz said, sort of pre-marinated meats, for editing in nutrition, for editing in taste, for tinkering with the meat 
at a genetic level and producing things that are delicious and nutritious are just endless. So I would think once we reach a point at which this meat is affordable and reasonably commonplace, I would hope that people start experimenting and that the meat that we see for sale in 100, 200 years is unrecognizable to us. Finally, I would like to ask both of you, what aspect of the future of food are you A, most excited about and B, most worried about? I'm most excited about, uh, I probably won't be around to see it, but I'm most excited about what I just talked about. I'm most excited to see how people experiment with the endless possibilities that this technology offers. I suppose what I worry about most is that we don't get there, that it seems to me that the problem of inputs is a really difficult one to solve. And until you do, we won't make it there. Um, I suppose the other thing that concerns me, it's a related point, is that we do manage to make cultivated meat, but it remains quite expensive. It remains a sort of status symbol. It's, it's something that people who are well off and already concerned with the environment consume. And it doesn't do much to solve the enormous environmental, social, and ethical problems associated with, with mass production of animal protein. Great stuff. Liz, what are you most excited about or most worried about? Yeah, maybe almost a counterpoint to John's last comment there. One thing I'm most excited about is the opportunity here for emerging markets or countries in the in the developing world to sort of leapfrog over the really intensive, dirty, unsafe types of, of animal farming operations that the West has sort of pioneered and and really uh, staked our claim in. So, you know, these new technologies coming online, it can sort of be kind of the classic leapfrog parallel to like cell phones taking over in, say, India and Africa without them having to build this enormous telephone wire uh, infrastructure. So if we can do the same thing here, I think we can avoid a massive amount of harm uh, from like a both a human suffering scale, environmental suffering, animal suffering, et cetera, all in one fell swoop. And I, I think that promise is real. The thing that keeps me up at night is, yeah, I think similar to John that we we can't get there or that we can't get there fast enough. You know, when we look at how quickly some of these climactic uh, sort of synergies are, are happening here. And I, I mean, synergies in a negative sense, we're up against the clock. And this really is urgent for us to be able to move, not just eventually towards an alternative protein food system, but to move very, very quickly in that direction. I think it's going to take a lot of really smart minds and a lot of really deliberative effort, but I think it's possible. John Fasman and this spec, thank you both very much. Thanks, Tom. Thank you. You can read all of John's report on the future of food with a subscription to The Economist. Head to economist.com slash podcast offer for your best introductory offer. Next week on The World Ahead, I'll be considering the future of healthcare and how much health monitoring and prevention is too much. Thanks to actress Laurence Bouvard for the voice of the food artist. Tom Pooley is the producer and Sandra Schmueli is the executive producer. The World Ahead was a tempo and talker production for The Economist. I'm Tom Standage in London in 2022. This is The Economist. <laughs>